Warning, please properly clean your sex toys before returning them to the Library Socialist Sorting Facility. They gum everything up. So happy summer, everybody. Yeah, happy summer. It's great. Not calling it white boy summer, because that sounds weird. (laughs) The the video of these, I don't know, there's, this was on Twitter, Chris showed it to me, and it's like all these young, probably early 20s white guys who, there's nothing outwardly Nazi-ish about them, but you get a feeling. You get a feeling. With the exception of everything about them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But yeah, they were just walking, uh, chanting, Groiber, Groiber, Groiber. Like you do. And I have no idea what that's it was a bit about. outwardly Nazi. That, <laughs> it's a, it's a Nick it's a Nick Fuentes thing, right? Groiper? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Is yeah. that that's what true. it is? Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. a it's, it so. is a Nazi thing. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. He, he got booted from Twitter or something, right? Like something happened to him where he was he was silenced. Uh, uh, probably. Yeah. Yeah. He was recently. Which is which is yeah. why we're not talking about him or hearing about yeah. him anymore. First, because... they come for the president of the United States. Yeah. But I, I wasn't the president of the United States, so I, I said, said nothing. nothing. <laughs> Back when I first started going on the internet, there was this real thing that you were supposed to like be ashamed of bringing internet stuff in real life. Like if you started using internet slang in person like that, mm-hmm. it was a sign that yeah. you were like a really internet-y person and like that's sort of bad. And that's how it used yeah. to be back in the day. And I really feel like this whole Nazi thing is a side effect of people thinking it's okay to bring the internet into real life actually i mean it's it's bad to be a nazi online too but that's i mean there's a lot of cringy things about channing groiper walking down the street but like the way i was raised is one of them is that you (laughs) you can't bring that internet shit into the airport lobby or whatever it just makes you look like a well well, also back in the 30s you're like what you say on a public address system you don't say like next to each other as friends you know like you don't <laughs> you know, like, beep, 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 whatever you you say, yeah, whatever you say on, on, over, on the your, wire, you yeah, over the wire, that yeah, over the wire, yeah, that was just for the wire. <laughs> um, did, did it for the telegram. It's cringe. That's <laughs> that's cringe. That is not based. Yeah, it makes me think of uh, when does the narwhal bacon, which used to be like in the earlier days of Reddit, that was wow. what you said to like let somebody know that you know you're in on it. And yeah, yeah. letting the internet seep out into the rest of the world was a mistake. Uh, we should have never let it happen. <laughs> And maybe we should pull the plug. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, so who are all of us? Why is we talking? Yeah, that's a important uh, question. It's yeah. a little early in the day for such existential questions. Yeah, yeah this, is, this is a special episode of Ironweeds and a special episode of Seriously Wrong, because it's a crossover episode. What, what is this, a crossover episode? <laughs> yeah, Seriously Weeds, Iron Wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I that's think what... I like Seriously Weeds. Yeah, yeah. Seriously, seriously Wrong Weeds. Um, yeah, I am David Banks at da underscore Banks on Twitter. Ooh, we what? doing handles? Yeah, why not? Wow. Let's just do it. We never yeah. promote ourselves on our yeah, own, right? Show, we but don't. Yeah, let's yeah. Do it. and I am one third of Ironweeds. It's true. I'm Brittany Gill. I'm another. I'm the second third underscore Brittany Gill. And I'm Chris Scully. I'm the the final third of Ironweeds, and I'm <laughs> offline uh, except for at Ironweeds Pod. Occasionally, I will post a a tweet through he's that. a fraud he's been telling people how he <laughs> deleted twitter he's not posting he's just using the ironweeds account so yeah. <laughs> don't let him fool you people it makes a big difference though honestly 
So I, yeah, I'm Sean, one of the Seriously Wrong Boys. I just took a break from Twitter. My account is still up, Parasocial Pal. I changed it to recently, formerly arm underscore muscle. Try to mix it up. So if you're listening to this in the far future, you won't be able to find me. And that's by design. <laughs> uh, Parasocial Pal, because it's so weird on the internet, all these sort of like semi-friendships and stuff. This rich social gradient has really been sort of like, especially in the pandemic time, it's been making me think a lot about just like all the different types of relationships in the world and how we don't really have language to discuss them. And a lot of things fit under this boundary of parasociality and people sort of monetize parasociality now and, and all of it makes me feel uncomfortable there's all this depth to it that's why i picked the name but since it's i just a great handle th- thank you i was surprised it was available all of them parasocial friend all of like parasocial is too new a word for all that to be capitalized um <laughs> huh. but i've been on the seriously wrong twitter recently just like you've been on the Ironweeds Twitter alone and it's still so much better like i feel no desire to yeah. like express stupid things like my general opinion on netflix shows never being good you know like because it's like i don't want to say that in the show's voice that's really a personal thought my name's aaron also seriously wrong i also mainly just tweet on our podcast account s-r-s-l-y-w-r-o-n-g if you want to look at my personal twitter it's linked there too but there's not a lot on there and yeah i'm i'm excited to do this i'm happy to be here with you all yeah, we are too. Thanks, you guys, for for coming. This is very exciting. Yeah. Okay, now everybody, post your OnlyFans Twitter, right <laughs> your OnlyFans account. <laughs> Mine is actually Parasocial Pal, which is a wild yeah, coincidence. Wild, <laughs> completely wild. People keep on yes. signing up for yours, thinking that they're going to get me. I, yeah, <laughs> and I'm sorry about that. I hope you haven't gotten any uncomfortable DMs. I have too many people on mine. It's too popular, so I don't promote it right now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, speaking of parasocial relationship, um, just being recently over the last year, like such a big fan of Seriously Wrong, um, I have to ask you guys, what's it like living rent-free in my head? Um, you guys like the decor? <laughs> you know, I tried to clean up a little bit, but you know, like, life's so busy. <laughs> His head is so dirty. It is. I think we all know that. The living in heads metaphor is always, there's something about it that I just don't, I think it's because I see it used so negatively, like, oh, so-and-so's living rent-free in so-and-so's head. I'm like, this whole metaphor is sort of weird about who's living where, (laughs) like, how many heads do you get to live in, and like, who pays rent for this? But uh, anyway, (laughs) the inside of your head's nice. It's, it's, It's a little, it's crammed because there's so much wisdom in here as well. But yeah, I try Aww. to keep it as folded Aww. as possible. I try to, <laughs> many know. folds, many yeah. beautiful folds. They're saying more get, and more. We're going to talk about the library of heads today. We yeah, are. Right? I'm very yes. so. So today we're going to be talking about something that the seriously wrong boys have expounded upon a, a bunch on their show. Three episodes in particular, and I'm going to link to all of those episodes in the notes for this show. Um, but we're going to be talking about library socialism, which I find very exciting. And whenever I hear an idea like a theoretical concept, especially something utopian, like my first instinct is to tear it apart and point out (laughs) all the ways that it won't work, which is a sign that I love something. And it's not something I'm going to do today, but like I am so curious to get into the nitty gritty of this. So um, thank you for that. Do you guys want to tell us a little bit about this really wonderful concept that you've been developing? Absolutely. (laughs) Well, first, like, there's a big historical philosophical tradition around this broad territory. And I don't want to claim that we really, like, we didn't make up that much here. I think the way that we talked about it and framed is a little different. And we're trying to popularize these ideas because we think they're really important. But the sort of, I guess, key insight that I feel like sort of came out of recording and talking about this that 
um, I hadn't received from somewhere else is this insight from Murray Bookchin and social ecology that we have two major crises, the social crisis and the ecological crisis. We have an ecological crisis of overproduction, overconsumption, too much resource throughputs, too much ecological devastation in our wake, and at the same time, a social crisis where people don't get what they need when they need it, and they don't have access to the, the basics of life. And both of these things are happening at the same time. And that was something that I really took, we really took from Bookchin in saying like, He's right to point these out as these two sort of almost paradoxical opposite problems. Like we're making too much, but it's not getting to the people who need it. And then that was mixed with an insight that it's it's hard to place exactly where we first heard of it. But like I said, there's a big tradition of it. It's this concept of usufructian property relationships and the lending library. Um, so what this means is a usufructian property relationship is a property relationship that's unlike the ones in our society where you have the right to destroy what you own and you have the right to abstractly own something in perpetuity. And this is something that Bookchin and other social anarchists talk about as well, usufruct. But the connection to the library is I didn't see made there. But basically, the heart of the point is that by sharing things, you can make sure that people get what they need when they need it more often by just sharing and making out systems to distribute things according to need when it's actually needed. Rather than everyone, for example, having power tools in their house, you can have a power tool library in the community that you can go to when you need one specific power tool. They can be the highest quality power tools. They can be made from materials not to degrade, like uh, under the capitalist system with the price and profit sort of system that we have here. Things are made to be rendered obsolete after a few years because they want to sell you a new power tool over and over again. They want to sell a power tool to every person in the neighborhood. But it doesn't take like an ecological genius to figure out that not everyone needs a new power tool every couple of years for the amount of power tooling that goes on in the average home. And we're going to overshoot the ecological limits of our planet precisely by doing this. Like, if human beings take too much from the earth and leave destruction in our wake, it's going to be because under our price and profit capitalist system, their desire is to sell every individual person a new motorboat every three years. It doesn't matter how much they use the motorboats. It doesn't matter how even good the motorboats are in their construction or design. What they just want to do is sell you a motorboat that degrades after a few years and then sell you a new one and sell you a new one. So library socialism at the top level is sort of the insight that there's a, me a mechanistic connection between the ecological crisis and the social crisis, whereby creating systems of sharing, not unlike a lending library, we can reduce our impacts on the world, we can increase the amount of access of people having to the things that they need, and we can build a society that works for everyone, not for the consolidation of private property. Um, so that's the utopian vision of library socialism. And we've thought a lot about this and intermingled it with other ideas. And there's a lot of things that sort of tie into that in our universe. But I'd say that's the top level. And if, if that's what people take away from it, no matter what their tendency or what they're doing politically, if they can take that from it and really understand that, I'd be happy. Like that mechanistic connection, I think, is really key here. Yeah, I just want to add on that. Like you were saying, these ideas of having property shared in common, use of Frechtian property, relationships between people isn't something we invented or thought of. But like when Sean first strung together the two words, library socialism, and we decided to have a conversation about it. I think we were also surprised by how many things made sense thinking about it through this institution that already exists in society and that everybody already kind of has an idea how it works. Like most people have used a library before. 
when you're talking about a future society where things are organized very differently, where social relationships between people and each other or people and items are organized differently, a lot of the time it can be very hard for people to conceptualize what you're talking about. But we have this institution already in society that's existed for a very long time that has already developed a lot of the types of rules or systems that we need in order to do this kind of thing, to share an item between many people and have many people get use out of that item. We do it already with books. So it's a really good intuition pump in that sense. And then the other thing is that when we started looking into like the history of libraries and like the struggle for keeping them funded and the theory behind libraries, like there's these five laws of library science that kind of blew our mind just in terms of like how well they explain how this kind of thing can work and like what the point is in doing something like this. But then also like libraries in society right now aren't just about lending books to people. They're about providing all kinds of services and items like tool libraries and things like that do already exist and are kind of expanding the definition of what libraries can be. But even just like your basic library probably has computers for you to look stuff up on the internet if you don't have one yourself, uh, or has printers for you to print things off. I go, I have a printer now, but I used to go to the library to print things off all the time. And like DVDs, magazines, music, there's already a precedent for sort of expanding what libraries can do it's just, it's a really useful intuition pump. And then underneath that intuition pump is a lot of really strong ideas and a really like strong basis for this inst institution that already exists that I think we can expand on to move society in the direction that it needs to go and solve these two intermingled crises that Sean was laying out. I, I really like the I, the phrase intuition pump, and if I may <laughs> if I may prime our pumps for a moment, right? Like you know, just prime like me, baby. yeah, just like t tabula <laughs> rasa, right? You know, like blank slate. Like, you think of of a problem like you know, Brittany and I moved from Florida to upstate New York, so like we learned about snow, right? And you're you're on your block. It snowed two feet, right? And I have a shovel, right? And you get rid of the snow with a shovel, and your neighbor has a snow like a, a snow blower right which is goes a lot faster and it was like oh i should go get a snow blower and so i went on homedepot.com www.homedepot.com and it's um, like a local hardware it's store, a local hardware you know, store around here i don't know if anyone's heard of it but um and it's like seven hundred dollars I it's think like, the cheapest one was like eight hundred dollars, yeah, and, and, it, so and it's expensive. got terrible reviews because yeah. yeah it was ridiculous i was like i will use this four times a year five times a year maybe maybe right why should I buy one when like the very point of this thing is that I could do the whole block in the time it would take me to shovel just my house. Right. And so like this is a so you're just like thinking like what's the best way to remove snow from the sidewalk? It's the best way to move snow from the street. The way that we do already now is that you have a couple people that have capital equipment. Yeah. yeah. Specialized 
equipment capital to make it done faster and and we all chip in to make that happen right and so like there's so many times and i think if we if we just like started from from jump you know like from the start like what is the best way to solve these very common simple problems the like the fifth tenth answer might be everyone own the same labor saving device right in in the case of snow removal for example it's, it's, it's an awful way to deal with this problem yeah, if we could communally own the proper technological solution and then you know employ it in a way that helped everybody, that would be a minimization of the effort and therefore the negative you know consequence of having to do the work in the first place. Not to mention, like not everybody wouldn't have to know how to repair a complicated piece of equipment and like watch innumerable YouTube videos trying to figure out why their snowblower won't turn on. Yep. Instead, you just have somebody who knows how to do that already. Uh, and you hopefully don't have to pay them $200 for them to come out and fix your $800 snowblower. Yeah. Th- this is the knockoff effect, negative implications of library socialism is all of the how to fix it YouTube channels would, now like, useless. would lose audience. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Would really harm, a lot that of would hurt the, the economy a great yeah, deal. I yeah. Think. yeah. It's, you yeah. Know, like, it was like a 45 minute YouTube video where like the actual useful information is in like eight minutes. And like, you know, there's like 20 minute lead up of like, oh, I bought this. Uh, Snowblower, you know, at Home Depot, www.homedepot.com. <laughs> and, you know, like, I, I once got the Ryobi. Don't ever get the Ryobi. You know, like, my cousin, he buys the Ryobi version of everything. And I tell you, know, he's so cheap. You know, just like, oh, on and on and on and on. And you're just like, I really need to just fix this snowblower. That is, I think, a real downside in a way of switching to a society that has more communal space is losing out on all the weird subcultural sort of like neurotic media that comes out of living under a capitalist system (laughs) and like, (laughs) like losing out just like the premise of looking at your neighbor's snowblower and being like, I got to get one of those. Like that's actually a brain sentence that wouldn't exist in a just society. Right. Like I gotta, (laughs) I gotta get one of those. Like, cause my neighbor has it. It's sort of like a weird, like it's a, it's a trained way of thinking, right? Like to imagine that the solution to you and your neighbor both having a problem and one tool being able to solve both those problems that you both need to commission from raw materials using your labor time the same <laughs> exact thing to use five feet apart from each other. Um, yeah. Well, and it, like further, what kind of like weird indoctrination have I been subjected to that I feel uncomfortable asking Barb, who lives across the street from me, if I could borrow her snowblower for 10 minutes to do my sidewalk. But there's something in me that says like, that is inappropriate. That is not, yeah. you cannot ask for that. Um, it was because I yelled at her about her dog. Well, we did yell at her about her dog. <laughs> she had, horrible dog. You know, she, dog had to, she had to go through all that trouble. She had to, you know, uh, build a shed and to, to store the snowblower. She had to figure out how to winterize it. She had to do all that stuff. And what, you're just going to like get to use all of that value for free without putting in that hard effort? Like I can with- give her 10 bucks. I mean- it's just still, I can't, I can't like bring my, you know. Yeah. But then even weird. from like your perspective, if it breaks while you're using it, then do you have to pay a thousand dollars for her to get a new slow blower or do you split it? Maybe she'll offer to pay for it herself, but then th- there's all these weird social dynamics when one person 
owns it and is therefore like, yeah, they can use it whenever they want, but they're also on the hook to maintain it, to store it somewhere. You pointed out the shed and like there's a potential cost for her in letting you use it in extra wear and tear even, or, you know, maybe you do something silly with it and break it and it's your fault. Like there's, there's so many of those little things that could come up. If that happens in a system where you're all sharing the snowblower and someone knows how to fix it, then it just becomes an issue of, oh, you know, we'll fix it. And now you know not to do that again. And it's our snowblower. We're all taking care of it together. But if it's her snowblower, then there's just all these weird social dynamics that are difficult to deal with. And it's just easier to not to just have your own and to not have to worry about another person uh, using it or you using theirs or like it. There's legitimate social reasons to not want to do that in addition to the like weird social atomization stuff that comes out of how it's set up right now. Right. If you had conflict over her dog even more so, then all of a sudden, if there was a mishap with the snowblower, all of a sudden you've got a highly... Personal dispute that relates to a dispute of, of, about a dog some time ago. It's not just a matter of figuring out the fair repair trajectory between the two of you. It's also tied up in, you know, what'd you say about my dog? And you have to fix it. <laughs> these sort of like personal <laughs> dynamics when you're making these one on one capitalist contracts that we actually solve the, some of these problems underneath the current economic system through stuff like pooled insurance, you know, where like by taking out an insurance policy, being paid out on your insurance is paid for by everyone's policy. So all that risk is pooled through this like financial mechanism that people make profit off of. But that same basic principle of coming together for that benefit, that same principle of coming together for creating an increased abundance by sharing resources that makes insurance markets work, can work with communally held tools and can work with I always use the metaphor of meal prep, which is like, it's so much easier. Like it's maybe twice as hard to cook for eight people as it is to cook for one person. So you save so much resources and time in a community by pooling resources around meals. And that's just like, in a sense, it's sort of abundant. If you assume that the natural state is one person doing something by themselves, the natural state is one person making a meal for themselves, then pooling resources around making meals is creating abundance, is creating like time and money out of nothing and it's not actually doing that because we've been pooling resources like this for our entire evolutionary trajectory it's only a very recent idea that we'd get so atomized around meals but when you compare the two it is sort of like printing money printing social money in a sense because when we pool resources whether it's through insurance or whether it's through use of and property relationships or whether it's through like pooling meal prep time you're creating something out of nothing by not wasting time in the way that we're expected to waste time and not wasting money the way we're expected to waste money. You hear that, Russo? (laughs) (laughs) State of nature isn't what you think it is. (laughs) And uh, Kropotkin talks about this in uh, The Conquest of Bread, which actually Brittany did a really great audiobook version of. When we were first kicking off the podcast, we, we had a chapter release at the end of each episode. And one of them talks about how just, you know, a neighborhood, you know, cooking, say, potatoes or something, and how just energetically the efficiency of like one pot of potatoes being cooked for, you know, 20 houses is like so much more energetically efficient. But we have to balance that with the fact that 
individual homes might want a little bit more butter on their potatoes or a little bit more seasoning, et cetera. So like the idea, you know, he proposed in the book is like, well, what you do is you get like an 80, 20 approach and you do like 80% of the prep time and cooking and, you know, an efficient way and distribute it. And then people can salt it or pepper it or each individual cook and do a little thing. And now they've got, you know, their own signature flair on it, which, you know, satisfies other human needs of, you know, variety and creative expression and, time orderliness etc and i think that that would be badass like i would love to be in you know you, you see those like high priced meal prep delivery services or whatever where they just like deliver you a bunch of like pre-made meals and stuff for like way more than it costs to make <laughs> right. like it would yeah, be like great 40 dollars for a plate of chicken i don't <laughs> yeah. understand it yeah. i mean but I, imagine which, like, which by the way <laughs> use the offer code uh, seriously ironweeds <laughs> for 30 percent off uh, blue apron blue apron <laughs> pre-packaged a better meals. way to cook <laughs> yeah you are alone in capitalist society eat like it uh, <laughs> well, that's with that meal prep sort of stuff too it's like i feel like they're taking the sort of economic material basis of library socialism and then making it work for profit because they're able to save a bunch of money by you know partitioning out all these meals in this way buying in bulk and all this sort of stuff so they're getting this collective benefit that we could create in our communities through social organization and then they're packaging it and selling it to us so the same way that like Spotify is a great service in the sense that you can access all this music, even though the capitalist back end of it is really fucked up. And the more you research about it, the more you find, you know, artists don't get paid fairly and so on. It's basically like Napster without people, you know, at least feeling a little bad about it. Um, <laughs> um, it's like that same benefit of like in a library socialist society, you should be able to access all music at any given time. And the economic system we have can take these benefits of pooling through their very specific power-laden mechanisms, take that benefit, put a cap on it, and then sell it to you. But that sort of like pooling, that coming together, is one of like the economic drivers of actually existing society. Like the, the capitalist society acts like this pooling doesn't work or isn't part of economics, but it just is like... It just, uh, I'm struggling to explain the, the totality of this, but there's this overlapping principle, which is like when people come together, you can generate time and energy and so on by doing so um, in comparison to doing it by yourself. And the capitalist system uses this every step of the way whenever it can, and then it tries to sell it to us. The same with like your, your meal delivery services. And under a library socialist society, I think a meal delivery service sounds awesome, but you probably want to do it on like a neighborhood by neighborhood basis. And it might be a more cooked, like an 80% cooked meal, like you're saying, or like it could be a group of people cut up all the salad stuff, they split it up. And then you have the option that you can have the neighborhood salad that day. Like it's a little fanciful in a way, but it's also just really, really pragmatic when you think about the logistics of like managing all of these people's lives and that everyone has to like cook their own meals right now or go to restaurants. It's no wonder that even though people feel bad about it, they go to restaurants. It's a natural thing to like not cook every meal you eat. Um, it's something yeah. that we've yeah. done for our entire human prehistory is have shared meals. Yeah. And another idea to crib off of Kropotkin would be to spread the labor of that cooking and distributing of, you know, these meal preps that you say a hundred people benefit from on a rotating basis, because what is drudgery and, you know, like mentally exhausting to do day in and day out forever and be isolated in that way could be a pleasure and a creative stretching of the brain for people to tag in on. And if you have a couple people who are sort of experts in the food safety of using a 
communal kitchen or whatever, and you tie it in with a sort of, you know, community supported agriculture, wherein the farmer that does the majority of the organization of the production of the crops for a community doesn't have to do all of the labor themselves, then the amount that they might need in terms of, you know, compensation for it could be scaled down to make it more affordable for everybody. Man, I can't wait to turn this pot of land into a garden, but until then, I guess I have to keep lawn nice and short. I'm gonna, oh, uh, ah, darn it, it's, I hate this lawnmower, it stopped working. Hey, Uh, hey, Dad. Dad? Wait, what are you doing? Ye- are you, yes, daughter? Are you kicking that lawnmower? I'm, yes. I have to get this done because we have a dozen other things to do today, and it's not working. Kicking it's not going to make it work any better, Dad. Yeah, Dad. You just got on to me last week for mistreating library property. You know what? This is, like, so typical. Dad, you got to be nice with our communal property. Yeah, it belongs to everybody, Dad. Yeah, I mean, look, I understand this lawnmower doesn't belong to me. It belongs to society, and I'm just borrowing it while I maintain this mortal coil, and once I'm done with it, I have to give it to someone else. Like, I get that. But right now, I really need the lawn to be mowed. I'm just very, I'm very frustrated. But kicking it isn't going to make it better. What are you, the Fonz? Don't you remember when we tried Fonz for Crimes Against Humanity for his destruction of jukeboxes. I don't want that to happen to you. It was appropriate that he was eaten by a shark, because that really did ruin that television show. I am so embarrassed that you're talking about Fonzie. Like, Dad, they had a workshop on lawn mowing repair like last week. They're doing it again next Tuesday. And Jerry, down the block, he can fix it. Like, I was busy at the Learn How to Fondue workshop, so I missed the lawn mower workshop that I probably should have gone to, but, you know, there's so many interesting ways to fill my time now that we've had a successive number of social revolutions that were peaceful and delivered us into a library socialist utopia. So I guess I really should have, you know, maybe picked the workshop that works best. There's always next week. They do offer them every week, don't they? Why don't you ask Jerry for help? (sighs) Jerry... If he knows how to do it. I think Miss Elaine can fix uh, lawnmowers, too. There's lots of people who can help. You just got to go talk to them. I, I would rather talk to Aline than, than Jerry. Jerry and I, we we had a an argument. I did yell at Jerry about his dog. But, you know, I mean, like, the dog always poops on the one part of the property that is still a lawn. You know, that's probably why this lawnmower doesn't work. It's got dog poop in it. Dad, it probably doesn't have to do with your personal dispute with the neighbor. It it seems like a mechanical issue or something like that. I I know you're feeling aggressive, Dad, but all of this kicking and blaming, it seems like uh, pre-revolutionary world aggression that uh, you shouldn't be passing on to the next generation. And I'm just saying that as a six-year-old. Yeah, Dad. Yeah, Dad. I mean, I'm 15 and incredibly self-absorbed, and even I know that this is not how you treat shared property. Like, it's just not, it's not a vibe at all. It's not a vibe, Dad. That may have been the way they used to do things, Dad, but nowadays we have better options to help each other. You can't point a gun at the lawn and make it grow, Dad. You have to nurture it. Gosh, you kids, you always keep me right. I do care and love each and every one of you because I was able to have kids when I wanted them and was not just forced into some scenario where I had to be a caregiver when I wasn't ready. So I, I, I think I am ready to grow 
and understand and actually learn from you, not just me teach you in some sort of banking model of education where I fill your heads with knowledge that I already have. You know, knowledge is something that grows in between people, not just, uh, you know, something that you give someone else. It's mutualistic. We're learning from each other. This is so lame. I'm out of here. I'm going to Janine's. Bye. Tell Janine that we want that blender back. It's the nice one. I like that one. The one in the library that is still available, I don't like it because I don't enjoy the color. I like the color of the one that Janine still has. Whatever, Dad. I agree with Dad. I want the nice color one. Janine's been holding on to it for too long. You know, actually, maybe if I just do this. Oh, hey, hey, it's working now. See? Turns out it was just out of solar energy. Dad, what if instead of cutting a short manicured lawn, we rewilded the lines with indigenous plants to help sequester carbon? We could do a permablitz. Kids, I knew, I knew I'd listen to you for a reason. Papa and multiple children. So I'm just going to admit it. I have the sin of lust, and that's gear lust. As a uh, engineer and a technologist, you're a slut I, for gears. I just can't get enough of that juicy technology. And um, there is a phrase that I forget who said it, but it's been rattling around in my brain for a couple of years now that humans are the reproductive organ of technology. Ooh, I like that. And I I do feel that way often. And I guess like in a library socialist society, there's going to need to be a lot of technological development, innovation, maintenance, repair. It's not like that will suddenly be a less technological society. It will just be less atomized in terms of the ownership and distribution of the labor associated with that technology. And I guess like, I'm interested in what you guys think would be like socially requisite for transitioning like our personal like tech gear lust on whatever distribution we have right now toward one where it's a, it's a collective enterprise, you know, like one big gear lusty cuddle puddle or something. That's disgusting. That sounds That's like disgusting. <laughs> are, are, How many diseases are going to be in this cuddle puddle? Yeah. Chris? Well, there, there'll be a, probably a little bit of computer viruses, but are you hopefully. asking like how to organize people who want to work with gears, like rather than the bosses paying people to do jobs thing, or are, are, are you trying to fuck my dishwasher? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, guess, I, I guess like I'm trying to think about the thing that keeps people like in line for the new iPhone or like that, you know, capitalist consumer driven, you know, I want to buy the new shiny thing. If the new shiny thing is not going to be something that I personally like attain and own, but is something that we attain and own, like what are we going to do with all of that um, techno sexual energy? Or like, how are we going to, how are we going to satisfy, you know, this perceived need, you know, that's been inculcated in us? I have, I, I, first of all, I feel like the amount that people actually care about shiny new things is often like overstated. I think the reason people want new phones every couple of years is because they stop working or because the new phones can do things that the old phones can't do. Or even if they don't stop working, they start slowing down and just not working as well. Like they designed them to not work as well on older hardware, both because the hardware keeps getting better, but because they like add stuff to like the iOS software to make it not run as well on old ones. They say to 
save the hardware, but there, yeah, there's there's a lot of things going on in there. But I think one thing that just popped to mind for me that I think is really important is that when we're thinking about how we're designing objects in a library socialist society, you wouldn't have like the iPhones the way they are now, which are like incredibly hard to get into and you need a special screwdriver to change anything. And they're basically, you have to throw them out when they stop working because it's such a hassle to change them that it's not worth it. And you can have smartphones that are modular in design and you can swap out the core if we've invented a new way to make cores faster or if we've figured out, you know, using three cameras lets you take 3D video now and it's become a thing where people want it. Um, you return your phone to the library and you can get one with the 3D thing and they can take the one you returned, refurbish it, add the camera module to it and then you still have a good phone there like that can be lent out again. You can even polish it up and make it shiny. So when someone takes it out for the first time, it's shiny again. I think like you can still have new things and things that continue to get better and improve over time. But like when I start thinking I need a new phone, it's not just because oh, it's the iPhone 10 now, that new number, and the, oh, the, the, <laughs> the ad for it is so much shinier than the ad three years ago. Like, I don't care about that. I'm just desperate for it's 3D just... video. Like, without 3D video, my life is falling <laughs> apart. Like, I just need to, like, throw a couple more cameras on this bad boy. Yeah, no, it's just, like, the software stops working, or I can't use new apps, or, like, there's usually a practical reason why I actually want a new one. And I think those or some reasons kid called can be me old with. because I had an old phone and yeah. now I feel old too. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually been thinking a lot about phones with regards to library socialism too, because like my phone, I'm terrible to my phones. I'm not very good at them. I don't like cases. I, I don't care what my girlfriend says. It does feel different. Um, <laughs> and I, so I've dropped it a lot and I am very impressed that it still works. But because they made it all glass, the back is cracked. I'm holding up my phone as if anybody can see it and nobody yeah, can see it. This, this is, is an audio, audio this is an audio app. medium. Yeah. But, <laughs> and there was, I was just seeing this article about them sending all of these iPhones with cracked backs to, I'm sorry, I don't remember where, like El Salvador or something. And they were just like smashing up the phone yeah. and they weren't even actually repairing the glass. They yeah. were basically sending people new phones under yeah. the guise of having repaired it. And- like, I think a lot of this stuff is just about, like you were saying, I, th I think it's a lot of it's about the way that it's designed, which is not for longevity, because they don't want you to keep your phone for six years. And so part of that is like an entirely different conception of the purpose of designing objects for consumer use. Is that like, you know, my mom complains about like her washer and dryer. And she's like, you know, the one I had before this set, I had it for 17 years before it broke. And this one I've had to have repair people come out and work on it three times. I've only had it for four or five years. You never know, like sometimes with older folks, they're like, back in my day, everything was better. But I think <laughs> with this thing, it's actually true. Like I think that planned obsolescence has gotten worse and worse and worse over time. So yeah, that's just, it, that makes me think about the ways that library socialism as a model, as a utopian model, wouldn't just be about the fact that like you check things out from a local library and that's how you get your, your power drill, but it would have to change everything upstream of that. It would have the entire like, you know, like 
productive system would have to be very, very different. Yeah, I think I think the incentives for production would be very different. Like when you were talking about it needs to change upstream from the drill too. It's like you have a drill making factory or whatever, and your goal is to make a drill that's affordable for most people and that won't work so badly that they'll complain and you have to replace it right away for the most part. But that probably won't last super, super long because then that would just be a really, really expensive drill. Uh, like you're going to produce one certain type of drill. But if you're producing a drill for a library system where the goal is that it's going to work for as long as possible and like, you know, unlike phones, there isn't a ton of technological innovation in drills like you can... <laughs> Make a drill that works for a really, really know. long time. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> what about a drill that connects to your phone and then you can turn on the drill from anywhere? <laughs> and then, like, you can tell your other friends what you drilled recently. Yeah. And, like, you can have a whole timeline of I'd things like to that be able you've to drilled from holes drill. in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Personally. Yeah, call it holer. Drill, driller. <laughs> Driller with no E. <laughs> the eye holer. Yeah, um, eye, eye hole. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess like I'm just thinking about like the the social implications of our relation to technology and technological change and how it's like sort of a um, a mar marketed as like a societal event when a new iPhone drops or we suddenly you know have wireless charging on something and everyone's like whoa check this out and they have like you know the expos and everything else and it's like if we lived in a library socialist society I think that that desire of engaging like in like a, a crowd kind of way with the introduction of a new technology could still be harnessed because it's like i think that that's something that people seem to like you know oh, yeah. like yeah yeah it's certainly like an element of like the consumerist funnel to like get people whipped up and create artificial desire but it's also like it's sort of like when i see you know um china sending up a new rocket to the moon base i have like this feeling as a human being of like we're progressing we're actually gonna do it you know we're doing like this new and exciting thing and i think like you could do that outside of it being like atomized and individual ownership of the net product of it yeah Absolutely. so when i want to check a rocket out of the library how long do i get <laughs> to keep that for is it gonna be long enough to make it to the moon and back yeah i don't know what uh, do you guys think i'm so yeah <laughs> First phase, probably not too much rocket loaning. First phase, I mean, we just need to get this. We need to pause the ecology until we figure out what's going on. I don't think the space travel stuff, the, the space travel stuff is so like um, front and center for the first phase. But for the long term, when thinking about a utopian society and space travel, I think there's an interrelationship between expertise and dedication and access to serious uh, scientific and technological technology, but still the boundaries between the so-called elite and the masses need to be dissolved over time, you know, like, mm -hmm. so what that means is empowering people to participate in the process of science, the process of engineering, and including the process even of potentially exploring the stars or going to the moon or trying rocket launches and stuff like that. I, I, I see this as needing a really to be responsible with something like rocket technology, which I think is a little different than a snowblower, you need to build systems that people can have faith in, that are participatory, where they can help set the own boundaries of the systems using their own common sense and their own sort of like democratic deliberation and so on. So 
yeah, when we start thinking about stuff like space travel, I think it opens up the sort of frontiers of some of the preconditions that are required for a really functioning library socialist society, which is the distribution of power in every sense. Um, and so that could be direct democracy in a political sense or in the workplace, but it's also the distribution of the potential to have access to skills and the potential to have access to the scientific process. And there should never be a boundary that says, you want to be a rocket scientist, but you just can't in any way forever. Sorry. Like, I find that to be a really disgusting thing to say to someone who wants to be a rocket scientist and don't get me wrong i'm not saying like strap them into something and just fucking like <laughs> let them go push the buttons whatever order they want but if someone really wants to be a rocket scientist and like they really want to contribute in that way i think everyone there's ideally should be a mix of contributing in ways that you like and you don't like for any individual like i don't think it's necessarily it's maybe possible but it's not pragmatic in the short term to think of like everyone having lives that are purely driven by joy and purely driven by what they want to do next. And like, I think you got to yeah. take the trash out you got to wash your dishes. Yeah. Um, and like, there's stuff like that that happens on a systemic, like larger scale. Like you have to participate in the community gardening project because you're eating from like the fruits of it, the literal fruits. But like, you also shouldn't close the door to people following any passion that they have. And I think that that to me, that sense of human thriving is very connected to my my concept of what library socialism should be. It's also connected to what libraries currently are. Like we've been talking about libraries a lot in terms of physical books and physical items, but like libraries also host skill shares, seminars and teaching classes and stuff. You go to your local library, especially if you're in a bigger city, there's tons of flyers up for all the things that are going on there that you can go and learn about. And when you think about what's in books, it's like information, it's knowledge, it's the 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 whole point of the institution of libraries, in a sense, is to maintain the sum of human knowledge over time and like keep it safe and categorized and be good stewards of it. And like another part of that is getting it to people. Like one of the five laws of library science is a reader for every book. Like books exist to be read, they don't exist to just be there. Like this information, there are people who want knowledge and skills to interact with processes in society in various ways and like what libraries already do to an extent and what they could do much more is to help connect those two things together the knowledge that is stored and the people who want it and the people who can help teach and whatnot and that could be really systematized in a better way this conversation is reminding me of something that I was recently part of a book club on yet a third podcast, uh, This Machine Kills, where we were reading Langdon Winner's Autonomous Technology. And the chapter that we were discussing was one where the author of this book, uh, Langdon Winner, is uh, analyzing Lenin's uh, one love of Taylorism, right, and scientific yeah. management, and how very problematic. Yeah, He's yeah, since yeah. been canceled of, for that. One of his problematic <laughs> faves, right, is that he was like the USSR would actually be better at Taylorism than the United States because we would not only rationalize inside the factory, we would rationalize between factories, which. Uh, capitalists can't do because they have to compete with each other. And so we'll actually make it efficient in between firms, not just within firms. And, um, and you know, there's also like a fairly well-known uh, speech that he makes to like young socialists where Lenin is like, 
like communism is electrification and we have to electrify all of mother Russia and so on, which, which I mean, like to some degree, I mean, like makes sense. Like I'm not going to say until like, you know, a bunch of Russian peasants in the Siberian steppe that they don't deserve electricity. Right. But, uh, but the, who's going to be the one the, to tell them? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Who's gonna be the one? <laughs> right. But the, um, but the, 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 the point that winner makes is that like, it seems that this desire for technocracy, right, of, of the technology infusing uh, this revolution is a poison pill. And that that is actually in like capital, like the capitalist technologies kind of poison this burgeoning uh, communist revolution because Lenin incorrectly thought that they could just import technology and make it communist or socialist when in fact technology has its own will and and kind of bends people towards its own reproductive needs like we were talking about how technology is uh sees us as you know, like reproductive organs i was wondering sean and aaron if, if you have a like have a, an opinion on that like to the degree that this is going to be like a mutual shaping scenario of technology society practice all these things uh, I think I'd have to think about it a bit more, but like I tend to think of technology much more as tools, and I like I do think that the way we shape our tools and the way we design our tools, and like really importantly, the social systems we use to produce them and share them or not share them, uh, are going to have huge effects on us as people. But I don't know if like I don't know if factories are inherently going to make kind of what happened in the USSR happen or like electrification. Like the thing about what you said that stood out to me at the top was the scientific management and Taylorism stuff and the like idea that like, oh, it's rational and efficient to have one person working one spot at the assembly line all day long because like they can just do that one thing over and over again and it's super fast or whatever. And it's like there is a sense that that's rational and efficient, but it's also not rational in terms of like what human organisms are designed to do. Um, like, I, I guess in a sense like that is not taking it as a relationship, being like, what's the most efficient way to run this machine rather than what's the most efficient way for humans and this machine, whatever machines this factory has in it, to work together to make what we need to make. Like, it, th there is a, something in that of, like, bending the human will to the shape of these machines and this assembly line, like, Taylorism view of things but i think it's not inherent in the machine that we have to interact with it like that and i think there's probably different ways we could design machines to minimize that but even if the design of the factory stays exactly the same i think we can just interact with it with different social structures and you'd get very different results so that leads me to another topic i've been itching to talk to you two about and this is the sort of like path as you guys are imagining it of which we would go from a society in which all of the means of production that our lives depend on all the technological infrastructure the factories the farms the equipment etc are all being used primarily for the exploitive profit interest by a minority of people who own the legal right to do with what they feel those 
pieces of equipment, et cetera, that our lives depend on. And transferring that from that state to a state where we can sort of do away with, you know, planned obsolescence because we're operating from like a different set of game rules and the equipment and the factories and farms and everything that we are currently depending on become communally owned by, you know, society, maybe even a global society. Um, that seems to be, you know, expropriation and like a, I'm, interested you guys have this vision of doing it sweetie pie and that it can only be done sweetie pie and uh i love the phrase but i also can't can quite you explain what it means just for folks who haven't well exactly that's what i'm, I'm really okay, asking yeah. for is like i can't quite imagine what the transference of all these things our lives depend on going from a minority of people for an exploitive profit interest to everybody for the general emancipation of people and the collective fulfillment of needs in a way that's, you know, sweetie pie. So could you guys expand on that? Well, first I would say that I, I don't want to make any sort of like ultimate hardline predictions about the way that history is going to unfold. There can be a variety of things that could happen. And I'd be hesitant to say that the only way that change could happen is by doing things sweetie pie. But I, I would say that I think it's the best strategic and tactical position in our current society to be sweetie pie. And I'll explain what that means. Uh, basically what it means to me to be sweetie pie is to come to political negotiations, political negotiations about the restructuring of society in good faith, in the sense that we are going to assume that the people we're talking to are capable of hearing our message, that we're going to assume that they might be willing to consider implementing the message if they understand it. We're going to try to organize ourselves in ways that if our neighbors were organizing that we wouldn't be afraid of. And we're going to try to think of what makes a political movement appealing or unappealing to large groups of people. And we're going to basically try to approach politics from the perspective that even though it's not strictly true and we could get into some of the details of the complexities of this stuff, but we still need to approach politics with the assumption that people can understand each other, they can come to conclusions together, and that good ideas that take care of people are powerful in themselves, um, which I, I believe that to be broadly true. So yeah, for me, being sweetie pie basically means don't do anything that are going to get your friends in trouble. Don't do anything that are going to like get people in your community separated from their families or their children. Don't antagonize political structure far, far beyond your capacity to fight them. There's things around that territory that it's like, it's not really popular to talk about. And I know it's not winning me any cool guy points, but like, I think there's nothing that the antagonists to socialism would like more than for us to be really, really loud and antagonistic and powerless which is what I see us more or less doing as our strategic view overall. So like, I think what we need to do is build up power over time. We need to build power in a sense that's based on good ideas, taking care of people and mechanistic solutions to problems, like not just solutions to problems of, Oh, um, we're going to put better people in charge at the top of the hierarchy and they're going to run Taylorism better this time. And you can trust them by the color of their flag or the color of their shoes or whatever. Um, I find that to be a really, really scary proposal from both a personal sense, but also in a common sense sense. Like I think people want to see something sort of qualitatively different from the politics, which is like brutalized and oppressed them their entire lives. I think there's a lot of good reasons to be suspicious of 
sort of like a revolutionary procrastination that says everything good needs to happen on this other side of a revolution. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so I don't mean to be naive and say, oh, this is going to be simple. All we need to do is prefigure the world we want to create. All we need to do is create spaces that subvert the logic of capitalism and build these, these sort of like counter spaces and everything's going to fit into place. Because I don't think everything's going to fit into place. I think it's going to be challenging and it's going to require different tactics at different times. And there might even be a moment where there's something completely non-ideological and opportunistic, which makes the difference for millions of people. And I don't want to say that homie who inherits Amazon, like Jeff Bezos's hypothetical future child inherits Amazon. I don't want to shut off the potential that they could make a choice that can make a big difference for us using that role. I think their role should be abolished. But at the same time, I'm very non-ideological in that space of like what is sort of permissible and non-permissible in different historical contexts. I think we have to take that on piece by piece. Um, but overall, I think being sweetie pie is trying to articulate as best you can the vision of where you want to go and also articulate as best you can the next steps and doing so in a way that isn't based on antagonizing individuals instead of systems in ways that people don't like. There's a chance that popular sentiment could change. And like, I don't want to just make this an appeal to like what people think, because I also think this is just sort of what I think is like, we've got a technological situation which is unseen in history we've got crises which are agreed upon by all strata of society in a way that's unusual and we've got this incredible information communications technology which is being massively underused for its revolutionary potential so all of those things as a stew here i see there being massive massive potential to achieve big differences in people's lives just by as nice as we can, explaining what we think, arguing about what we don't think, and then working together to organize and challenge systems uh, that aren't working. That doesn't mean that there's anything outside of this is forbidden. And I think there's like, you know, like I, I can say murder is wrong, but also saying that if someone's going to kill you and in self-defense, you end up killing them. That's a little bit different. Um, the same thing sort of applies in terms of like revolutionary change in my world. Like 99.9% .9 of the work ahead of us is conversations. It's, you know, talking to our neighbors is doing stuff that benefits them. It's building up common sense that challenges the system. And I think sometimes on the left, there's like sort of a, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to like disparage people or anything like that. I think there's just sort of like, it's like a first day communist kid thing of like, I'm new to leftism. So I need to be like, really show how hardcore I am and like really, really show like <laughs> bring out the guillotines. <laughs> yeah. Like if it came down to it, like, yeah, I could not flinch at bloodshed comrade. I, and I'm like, basically ah, Che. Yeah. I, I, don't. I mean, we, we're definitely guilty of making a lot of parody satire jokes on this show. Yeah. A lot. We just made one in the bonus episode that we just recorded. <laughs> Look forward to that. Patreon.com slash Ironweeds. Um, and I want, I've, I think about that a lot too. I kind of think some of it is like libidinal and that it mm -hmm. comes from this place of deep rage and dissatisfaction yeah. and fear. And like, it's hard to know what to do with all, like I, you know, have said this before on the show is that like one of the reasons that I, am maybe like a little bit more radical than like a, a democratic socialist or something is because climate change looms heavy in my mind all the time yeah. and that like we have okay we have 15 years okay we have 10 years okay now we have seven years and like what do we do about that we can't really convince these global powers that rule the world to please treat the planet better and so i think some of it might be i think it's actually 
maybe more naive to conceive of a violent revolution than it is to conceive of like a one based much more in persuasion and solidarity mm-hmm. building in part mm-hmm. because we don't have anything relative to you know the elites like we yeah. don't i don't yeah. have a tank I- uh <laughs> <laughs> And I, and I think that it actually is the playing out of that, just that like unfulfilled rage at literally raging against the machine. Just like, what else do I do? Quit it now. So I'm going to post guillotine memes on Twitter. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think like in addition to rage, a lot of it is despair. And I feel like there's this way in which like seeing how much is wrong with the way things are right now and how insufficient the current efforts are overall to do anything about it. The idea that you can change people's minds or we could use the existing imperfect but somewhat existing democratic mechanisms that we have in society already to make changes that actually matter it it can feel like that's impossible because you see so many examples of it not working and then you do have that rage and that despair and there there's just this sense of like well we've we've tried everything else so like maybe we do just need guillotines and guns or tanks or whatever but like what can we actually do in a violent sense to fix these problems like it's also naive as you're saying so i like i feel like it's completely valid to feel that way but i think one of the reasons we push back on it in the way we do is because there's a way in which that rage and despair can also lead people to inaction because it closes people's minds off to the things that we can actually do in the world right now to make differences in our communities or the political spheres that we have access to because like you're saying we don't all have tanks So I think that it's important to encourage people to think about all the things that aren't expressions of rage and despair that might be helpful. Because in addition to helping others, helping your community, they also help you feel better about what's going Mm -hmm. on if you you can make some kind of difference. Mm -hmm. That That is very true. Yeah, and that's well put, I think. I think also as a practical matter, if we did all have tanks, it's not fucking simple. It's not simple no, to yeah. go to not war with the world. Um, no, and, not at no. all. And it doesn't matter how great your tanks are. And I mean, if you have, like, if <laughs> we great tanks, if we best have, tanks. these are the best tanks. We have just absolutely <laughs> everyone's got one. Um, Everyone but, says it. <laughs> so, if, what is this scenario where people have access to all these violent means of retribution, but they don't have access to technological stuff that would give them the potential to be benevolent? even in like the exercise of one's will over another population, which is something I think we should try to avoid as like a moral issue, not just in a, I mean, if there's any scenario where I can stretch my brain to think about enforcing will on other people, it's a, it's like a revolution where you, you see a system overthrown that's completely brutalizing and hurting people and and all that. Like, but at the same, like as a technical matter, and it's important to like, I think think through what it would really mean in practice is like, I don't think even if we all had these great tanks and there was this total consensus that it was time for like the clan, <laughs> I, mean, I can't even say it out loud. It's just, I find it too gross, man. <laughs> like I really find yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but like if everyone, if there was a consensus on that, um, it's not 
what you have on day two is not a socialist revolution. What you have on day five is not a socialist revolution. What you have on probably year three is not a socialist revolution. So you're, you're undertaking a big process. And think about this in the context of climate change, too. Tanks need to be made from raw materials. They run on <laughs> yeah. fuel. Yep. And going to war with having a worldwide civil war over climate change is bad for the environment. Um, so like our, our survival window, our tactical window is really small, I think. And I don't want to be closed-minded and say, you know, people, if someone's defending themselves, it's always wrong for them to do harm on others. But I'd say as like a general principle, having power is an ethical responsibility to, carries with it an ethical responsibility to show benevolence to things that are less powerful than you and people that are less powerful than you. And like, I think that moral requirement or that moral imperative when possible, whenever available. So if, for example, you're planning something big with a lot of resources and you're using foresight going into it, which is like the situation we're in now, it's important to think about how do we approach these situations in ways that don't brutalize people, that bring people over to your side, and don't create opportunities for decades of bloodshed that may or may not lead to a better situation. And like, I think despair is a big part of why People turn to this, and I think there's funny memes that come from place of like anxiety about the world and stuff like that, and righteous anger and stuff like that. And I don't mean to shut down any of that at all, or even judge people who engage in that, and we've engaged in that on our show a little bit. It's just that if we want to be serious about undertaking political change in a strategic way, I think we can't be sort of led by you know, despairing bloodthirst and we yes. can't be yeah. picking a fight with the world um, yeah. because neither of those things, neither of those things work. I don't think. And I think we need a lot of different things all coming together in order to work. Like that's mixed methods, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Diversity of tactics and strategy. Um, but yeah, I completely agree with everything that everyone's saying. I really just wanted to, you know, hear more about the Sweetie Pie vision because I agree with pretty much everything that you guys are saying. I think that there's another angle, though, that people arrive at the force option beyond despair or anger or, you know, anything. And it's one of logic. Because, you know, we look at the property relations that exist right now and what is sometimes made very explicit and sometimes just implicit is that the reason I can't just go to stop and chop and fill my grocery bag with what I need to eat for the rest of the week and walk out without paying is because there's this very understood thing that a man with a gun or a woman with a gun or, or a non-binary person with a gun, with a gun yeah. is going to come and use the state's monopoly of violence to keep me from doing that to enforce the profit motive of a minority of the population that owns the corporations that you know produced and distributed the goods that my life depends on. And I think that going forward, the humans emancipating themselves from the capitalists in this planet, one of the only things that we have is our numbers. And the fact that we could popularize potentially without a lot of bloodlust, the common sense logic that we can just take it and we, you know, the, the, the threat of violence is implicit, which is to say, like, we're going to need to take all that stuff that you capitalists have taken for yourselves for an exploitive profit motive and use it for universal human emancipation and like i i see the whole sweetie pie thing breaking down 
like it always does by the rich using their monopoly of violence on you know the 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 non-rich any dissent yeah yeah like when they do it's We've like you know seen a lot of that in this last year yeah like all the protests that i've seen that get quote unquote violent it's the cops that make it violent it's the powerful that use violence to secure their position in this inegalitarian world that create it to be violent having the logical understanding that you know we outnumber you like a billion to one like, you know, with all of its basic physical implications, you know, I, I think that it's important to have that in the back of our minds and to, on some level, make that common sense, which is, you know, like prefigurative narrative work, but not focus on it too much because like any individual, you know, organization that's trying to just like feed their neighborhood, if they try to use the tactic of violence, obviously they're going to lose, like in their isolation and like the incredible you know, asymmetry of the forces that are to be brought to bear. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is where maybe like labor movements can be really helpful because, you know, a general strike gets the goods. We yeah. haven't had a general strike in this country since yeah. I don't know, a very yeah. long time. Yeah, yeah. Union um, makes us strong. Yeah. And, you know, but one of the weaknesses of that approach, the, the plus is that it's nonviolent generally, probably would be a little violent, until but it's not like. Until the Pinkertons get involved. Until, the, until they call in the Pinkertons. Um, but the the problem is that the only concessions that you can really gain are those that still allow capital to exploit your labor. All you can get is better wages. Like you can't I, I couldn't we couldn't have a general strike right now that would convince Jeff Bezos to nationalize Amazon. Like that, like there's no even if every single worker in this country stopped working for a month, that still wouldn't happen. But, you know, in terms of like slowly chipping away at what exists, slowly building a, a slightly better world, slowly reallocating wealth so that it's just a little bit more evenly distributed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that that's a great tactic for doing that. Mm -hmm. And then also beginning at the same time, more of these communally based models like library socialism, mm -hmm. we, we start consuming less, we start purchasing less, we start sharing more, we start building ways of relating to ourselves and our neighbors and our loved ones mm -hmm. that are better suited to the world that we want to live in. Yeah, start with what we already have. So the whole argument of what is obviously needed to be taken over is not as front and center and like aggressive while we're in a position of no power. On the history of labor struggles and like it's the cops that always bring in the violence. Absolutely. Like we did a show on the Winnipeg general strike a little while Amazing. back. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, we talked about May Day recently. You go back in that history. It's exactly what happened. It does happen over and over again. Like once you challenge the power of capital, they're going to send the guns after you kind of thing. And that's absolutely part of the history there. I think there's a difference in terms of preparing for that or understanding that that happens and seeing we need to start a violent revolution as the method or like that. That's sure. that's what's going to yeah. make things happen. Um, yeah. Also. Yeah. I, th I think it's possible we could nationalize Amazon with a combination of strike tactics and voting in people and whatever, like even like a social democratic type system. I'm not saying this is socialism, yeah. but nationalizing something like Amazon, because Amazon, you can do like, it's, They've monopolized it's taken, retail. It's, exa yeah, exactly. That's what I wanted they to say. They made it so easy to take. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now we get all look, the retail. This is, according, from a Marxist perspective, this is exactly <laughs> what capitalism is supposed to do. It's supposed to build incredibly powerful tools and systems that we then steal from them in expropriation. Like, 
It's all right. going according to the plan. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's going fine. <laughs> I would also be, I would be like remiss. I would be a terrible professional if I did not take a brief second to promote my other podcast, which is called Reaction. And the first three or four episodes of that show are all about the uh, Pinkerton National Detective Agency. And it's quite good, in my opinion. It's we talk, excellent. I talk a lot about labor movements during the Gilded Age and how uh, a lot of workers got killed. But you know what? They took down some Pinkertons, too. So. <laughs> yeah, and well, nice. it, it, you know, I, th- I think that is important to consider is that like, you know, going back to like the idea of like what form technology takes to empower, or disempower different groups of people is like, I, I'm not, I wouldn't go so far as to say like, you know, car dependency was uh, designed from the outset to destroy worker power. But it is interesting, right, <laughs> that cars do a lot to increase the police state, right? Because now you have to manage everyone that is piloting these vehicles and you can pull them over and the Fourth Amendment doesn't matter anymore once you're in a car, a bunch of stuff like that. But then on the the other side, you then disempower people who like run buses and trolleys and all these other modes of transportation that when they didn't like something they could shut down your entire city yeah like no mm. no problem mm. which is a, you know a a a centerpiece of uh our show's namesake the kennedy novel ironweed you know features a streetcar strike that happened in albany that shut down some of the main finance centers of the gilded age and uh well no well, it was a little later but you know you can they they, they did it then too right you, and you, same you with can, rail i mean you could shut down yeah, the whole you region could shut down the whole country striking from, a railroad yeah. yeah so like these are you know like the kinds of technologies we use to get around to to buy things to talk to each other to send dick pics you know like all of these <laughs> things have different kinds of power uh, uh in them depending on how they're used and 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 who has the expertise to to operate them yeah you can't shut down all cars but you can block traffic and they do really get mad about that so it's, they do they, get <laughs> they, they run people traffic. over in yeah, fact yeah. a lot yeah, they're, in they're the last year how many people now aren't they like, yeah, yeah, they in have, florida, yeah they've done it in a couple states in yeah. florida it is legal to yeah. run somebody over yeah. <laughs> thanks ron DeSantis. yeah <laughs> best governor yeah. he's gonna be our president yeah he's gonna yeah. be our next president yeah ron De- keep yeah. that name in your mind ron DeSantis. And now it's time for a special announcement. That's right. The heir to Jeff Bezos's fortune is deciding to give up that wealth to the people by donating it to Elon Musk, who is teaming up with President Maoist Elizabeth Warren to green the military once and for all. And Elon Musk is a head in a jar. Yeah, important to note that, of course. Hello, my beautiful subjects. I know these years have been quite trying on us. I lost my father in a Blue Origin disaster, but we must endure for the sake of our republic. The good thing is I still have all of the wealth that he has managed to accumulate from the human species. And I am using that wealth in as responsible of a way as possible. As we know, we cannot end these climate change wars, but we've worked together to create a solution to the greenhouse gases that we're emitting in this global onslaught of all against all. I have here with me the disembodied head of Elon Musk, also due to a space mishap. 
Thank you, Jeff Bezos Jr. It's so nice to see that you have grown into a hairless man just like your father. That's a little sensitive to mention at this time, but thank you. It is, of course, my pleasure as even though I am just a, a disembodied head in a jar, like you said, thank you for bringing that up. It's very awkward to bring it up myself, so thank you for saying that. Um, we at Tesla and SpaceX have decided to build a tank that is electric powered. It is 100% renewable. It gets 300 miles per charge unless you use the rail gun, in which case you get about five miles. It is called the cyber tank. And um, it also, it, when you press this button here, press this button. Press okay, it. pressing the button. Oh, you like that? It, it sounds like a mariachi band. It's very nice. Delightful. That's just a fun thing that you can do on the battlefield. It really lightens things up because it, it, otherwise it gets very serious, you know? So anyway, I, I'm really happy to be able to bring this tank to what is left of the American federal government under the brave direction of chairwoman Elizabeth Warren. Thank you, Elon. And can I say, as chairwoman of this great fallen apart nation, I just have to say that I think these electric tanks are gonna be a real game changer. You have to understand, there are mommies and daddies all over this great nation. And they're worried about their little babies, their daughters and their sons and their non-binary children. And they're wondering, when is this climate war going to end? How much longer are we expected to fend off the hordes of climate refugees at our borders? And that's why we've got to have these electric tanks. And I know what you're thinking, Liz, shouldn't we have a little human decency towards these folks? I mean, aren't we part of the reason that they are at our borders in the first place? And I say, maybe, yeah, maybe. What was I saying? Uh, uh, little Bezos, jump in here. What are they gonna, what are these tanks good for again? So, so it is a tragedy. We are killing so many people. But we also have to think about the next seven generations of children and, as you said, mommies and daddies. They're going to be breathing the air that we are currently toxifying in our struggle to hold on to the ill-gotten gains of this empire. And if we can make that tank that is going to crush these refugee children all over the world run a little greener? My question is why shouldn't we? Just because I'm a head in a jar does not mean I don't have a heart. That is why I find it very important that we green the protracted people's war and make sure that, you know, we can put it on the blockchain too. That is one other possibility that we do is that we take all of the blood spilled all over the battlefield and we put that on the blockchain so that that way you know everyone can get a piece of the war profiteering and you don't need to be a big company right anyone can can make money off of the bloodshed of millions and millions of people who are very desperate to survive in this blood we're talking premium children blood and i have said it before and i will say it again you didn't build that you didn't build that war yourself. You think you can just keep all the war profits to yourself? No. No, you gotta save some for the next guy to come around. Get some of those war profits. 
To be clear, I didn't make anything either because I am literally a head in a jar. I'm inspired. Are you inspired? What an inspiring I'm announcement. I'm so inspired. I've got big stars in my eyes and they're twinkling Goosebumps. from all this. Yeah. Ooh. You know, you think after 50, 60 years of climate war, oh, we're just, this climate war is going to last forever because the war keeps on causing climate change. But now it looks like we've actually got a path out. And that sparkles my eyes just to think about. Yeah, if we can just continue the war and get the climate change gone. And just, and not leaving anyone behind, you know? Mommies, daddies, body, head in a jar. Everyone's welcome to split the war profits from the empire. That's beautiful. Oh, and when you said not leaving anyone behind, I thought you meant not leaving anyone behind that we kill who are trying to cross our borders. Uh, not splitting the war profits in the country. We're not leaving anyone behind in either sense. You know, anyone who tries to enter, they will kill them. No one left behind there, mommy, daddy, child, same in the country. Anyway, it's, it's a beautiful symmetry. So there you have it, a beautiful glimpse at one possible future. It's not our utopia, but it's somebody's utopia. And it's our take on the old classic sketch of Maoist Elizabeth Warren meeting Elon Musk head in a jar meeting son of Jeff Bezos. I think we did all right with that. All right, want to just jump into good for library socialism or how, sure. how would it work for library socialism and just start listing some, you know, things. I think you you guys, I actually hadn't caught the last part of the um, minimum, uh, the universal minimum or whatever, um, where you guys talk all about toothbrushes. Because I, I thought that that was a good one, but you guys, you really did a great set of bits on that. Oh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's, a, it's an important issue, though, where, where the toothbrushes go. It's been a matter of contention. I think we solved it, which is that the toothbrush needs to be abolished and replaced with a new tooth cleaning <laughs> system. With a stick. You know, embrace tradition, uh, reject modernity. Just chewing gum. Chewing gum is very effective against plaque buildup. Oh, by the oh, way. Nice. Okay. And that's recycled. It's already recycled. You yeah. chew it up and then you share it. <laughs> Somebody Maybe else people it. use gum already. Yeah. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. yeah you exactly. just spit it into each other's mouth over and over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> that one's, okay. So that one's out of the way. That one's simple. Yeah. Right. What about sex toys? <laughs> yeah. Where's my hibachi vibrator? Is that what? No. Hibachi's the restaurant. Hitachi. Hitachi. Yeah. Um, a, a hibachi vibrator would be painful <laughs> and you should not do that. But it would be tasty. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I think personal property, I think, is the sort of territory we're dealing with here. It doesn't, I mean, at the end of a life cycle of it, I don't see a reason why it shouldn't be returned for processing. I have, I have faith in our ability to, like, sterilize materials and understand what materials are suitable for being reused in that mm -hmm, very intimate mm -hmm. way. But uh, overall, I think you could just hold on to it for the life cycle. I don't. I don't think you need okay. to return that one every week. So, so as the technology improves and we get toward really sophisticated sex bots, they're not forced to be polyamorous. Like, you, you know, people, they can, <laughs> they can have their, you know, their waifu robot. <laughs> you know, I, I won't, maybe I'll let the people of the future decide that. It's, uh, it's too much for my 2021 brain to... Yeah, I'm a 2021 conservative in the sense that I think that part of the goal of revolution is to prevent the existence of sex bots at all costs, like full ones. I support that. Yeah, yeah. I support that. I don't really like the, the way this. The, when I when I use my like science fiction brain on places where fully funct like full sex robots would go socially, like I don't 
the liberatory potentials seem very fleeting compared to all of like the really fucking weird potentials. Um, <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. I think with we've that. already perfected the sex toy. You know, we got it. It's it's yeah. each other. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the real sex toy was the friends we made along the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually think so. It's obviously it's a very snarky kind of silly question to ask about. Like, do we return the dildos? Uh, but but it, it the reason I think it's interesting is because it makes me want to know like what falls into the realm of personal property. And I think some things are more obvious than other things. Um, but like I keep thinking about. I don't know, like as I was listening to the episodes, I was just kind of walking around my house and I was like, so like this coffee mug, like if I, you know, I really like this coffee mug, I want to keep it. Yeah. And then like, what if I fall out of love with a coffee mug, I can like take that, I can return that to the library and yeah. maybe somebody else gets it. And just sort of, I, it was an interesting experience to like rethink everything in my house Ownership. this way. Yeah. yeah. So like, what would be the things that like I would definitely they would be mine. They would be mine forever. I what 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 would I, I have the right to destroy? I in the Lucifrefian yeah, model. Yeah, I don't know if I would really even want to draw the line of personal property. Like, I'm not necessarily against it, but when you think about um, another example, I thought of that's a bit less graphic than sex toys is like old shoes and like shoes you get holes in the soles and they smell bad after a while and like, like do you really want to wear something? <laughs> 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 do, do you really want to wear someone else's old shoes? Probably not. Maybe if they only, if they're like fancy shoes, they only wore it a few times, like your yeah, dad's yeah. fancy shoes or whatever, you wear them to your wedding or, you know, maybe, but like probably not most of the time. But the shoes with holes in the soles, there's like, there's useful materials there. And like, mm -hmm. you maybe aren't returning that to the library for someone to take the exact same shoe out again and just wear your old shoe. But like those materials can be broken down and used in the library system, in the production process for other things again. And it's like, currently the way we think about things that we own is we own them until they break and then we throw them out. But like throwing things out just means we put them in a landfill. Like we just designated this yeah. spot for like all the things that were refusing to return to the production system like that we're not recycling these like overdue library items that we've just left out there things people don't want to use anymore but that we don't have the system to circulate in the way that's necessary so things like sex toys might be melted down or if they're made of glass maybe they would legit just be cleaned and someone else would use them again maybe not maybe some people would be into that i wouldn't force anyone but like i'd be <laughs> fine with a used sex toy yeah, I, like I wouldn't even bat an eye you can watch it i'd like to think they're not into it but they're okay with it you know <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Either, either it's just or. a thing we put up with. i'm sorry we don't kink shame on this podcast you know you wanna <laughs> but like and even if you think about things like blenders which like you're not gonna be like returning your blender every week because you only make smoothies on sundays or whatever you probably just want to keep your blender on your countertop yeah yeah but mm -hmm. at the same time, if we've designed all blenders to last 30, 40, 50, 100 years because they're super well designed, then like when you move in with new roommates and they already have a blender there, you don't need it anymore. So you could return it to the library or like you and your partner split up and now you have two households. You need a blender again so you can take one out of the library. Like one of the 
things about the library intuition pump that needs to change slightly is that we think about like, oh, you take a book out for three weeks and then you have to put it back. But like there's certain items you would probably take out for maybe a year, maybe 10 years. Like if we think about housing as a library item, you might live in a city for two decades and then want to move somewhere else. So like you've taken that housing out of the, it's a weird metaphor in that case, because you don't like take your house out of the library or whatever, like a tent. <laughs> like, but no, like, but like the point is you, you don't have the right to destroy it, which I think yeah. is sort of my favorite part about this yeah. whole concept is well, that nothing is truly your, or maybe very, very few things are really yours to destroy or make unusable. Mm. What about then like things that are meant to be sentimental, mm. or, like uh, wedding rings, mm -hmm. like things that are meant to only be for one other person? Yeah. Or at least like within a family. Well, I think that'd probably, like that'd that probably fit into the, the shoe analogy. Yeah. You know, like when, when it's really, truly beyond your personal property desire to give it to, you know, your next of kin or your best friend or whoever. Um, and it's, you know, becomes something you don't want. Instead of it going over there to the landfill, it goes over there to the, you know, library feedstock, uh, you know, refabrication um, breakdown factory. And so like when you get, when, you know, your, your wife cheats on you and, uh, <laughs> and you leave her instead, <laughs> instead of taking your ring to like the dock and like angrily throwing it into the sea and then crying and then yeah. maybe you go get some ice cream. Instead, you just take it to the library and now somebody else can have your lovely or, or maybe that lovely ring. maybe the c is the the infinite sink for sentimental things and we just you know come up with a technocratic <laughs> solution of like a little robotic like you know fish that goes around and plucks all of the, so many movie stuff yeah, yeah and exactly yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I do like the idea of there being like some sort of like dedicated trawling boat that just like collects all the things that you that you very dramatically threw into the sea yeah, there's just one like part of the sea happened. we've set aside for everyone to do yeah. this when they need to we love this part yeah, of right. capitalism we wanted to retain it you know one thing on that note that i like is packaging that is actually biodegradable i had this thought on along the lines of like well if people already do something how can we make it work better like people litter all the time could we make it so that things that are littered it's fine like it, as soon yeah. as it rains it breaks apart and it's like a useful part of the environment again they do like that probably, with packing peanuts now packing yeah. peanuts that Starch. dissolve in rain yeah, yeah. and then right. I, i've worked right. actually at this company ecovative that made uh mushroom packaging that replaced polystyrene and turned into compost within like a month nice so yeah like you know th that kind of thing is happening but like once again you know within the capitalist system like you have to out compete at that market for a price point because you're competing against people who are exploiting others and the environment regardless of its like ecological cost and so like if you can't provide you know say I don't know, pick a brand like Toshiba, like a, uh, a a thing to package their TV in that is cheaper than styrofoam, doesn't smell, doesn't do anything like, et cetera. They're not going to buy it on the market. So, you know, the 
capacity for a company like Ecovative to make a huge impact in the world is still up to the bottom line of all these. Yeah, you know, it's a total circle jerk between every other company <laughs> that's already doing e like eco-sensitive yeah. stuff. So yeah. it's just like the same 17 people in Brooklyn, like sharing yeah. the mushroom packaging that yeah. they put their handcrafted soaps in. So maybe we need like a, a cap and trade for litter. And I could be like, well, you know, I dumped a lot in the ocean this year. So here's some points. <laughs> One thing I wanted to say on the issue of like wedding rings and like long-term borrowing from the library. First of all, like wedding rings are like a pretty recent cultural innovation, this sure. idea of like the diamond wedding ring and stuff. And the library system, the way that we set up with like book libraries, the circling the three-week thing is based on the presumption of scarcity and like making sure that everyone has a turn to get uh, access to things. But I think when it comes to stuff like around our house, like couches and desks and stuff like that, um, that we, we could have enough that everyone, like, I think we actually have like physically enough on earth already to like ensure that everyone has a universal basic desk, universal basic bed mm -hmm. and Absolutely, so on. Yeah. Um, and then like, that's something that, yeah, at the end of its life cycle, it can be like upcycled and, and updated to be put out again like that. So it's, I guess just the thing I would I would sort of emphasize in that space is that limited term borrowing is based on places where there is scarcity or where there should be scarcity and is also based on getting things to where they're needed. And so like it's actually a fairly narrow field where you're going to have things like a coffee mug. We've got enough coffee mugs in the planet for you to have more coffee mugs than you need at home, even under a library society. But like, maybe if we're being honest about how many mugs we really need, we would have less as well. Like, so there's, I think there's like an interplay between all of these sort of things in yeah. that, like yeah. the life cycle of a desk, I'm not going to like leave my desk on the curb and hope someone else takes it. Or I'm not going to think about like trying to sell it on Craigslist for the best price I can or something like that. Is there's going to be a system where it's easy because there's a, a social infrastructure to be ready to receive things and then make sure that they get to be where they're needed. Um, so I think under the library socialist system, like returning to the library is as easy as throwing out things is under our society. Mm -hmm. um, you could call the library pickup people and they'd zip right over and grab your, your couch. Yeah. Or like have a corner shop or a corner drop box or whatever. And you throw the old family wedding ring in there <laughs> if you want. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I think so much about like, there's so much shit that I'm holding on to in my house simply because I don't want to throw it away. I feel bad about throwing it away, but I don't know what to do with it. A broken coffee grinder, a, you know, whatever, various stuff. And I'm like, I know I can't get this thing repaired, but I don't want it to end up in a dump. And so it sits in my basement and that's, Better you than know, a dump. <laughs> I, yeah. And it, it would be so liberating to like, just be able to take that in someplace and like, get it not my problem anymore yeah yeah like that and real I, life essay like that real life essay yeah mm -hmm. um and the other thing and maybe this is silly to think so much about the blender but i really have thought about it a lot and the reason is we have a blender and we always use it on a whim like we're never planning to use the blender i don't like it's just something we're like hey i want to make uh this thing i want to grind these spices i have it in my calendar yeah, yeah, David, and it's on our shared calendar, so yeah. I get a notification yeah, like an smoothie. hour before every time David wants to make a smoothie. <laughs> yeah. But what I like is that, like, yeah, so let's say that I keep the blender 
it's pretty much always at my place. And then if somebody else who uses a blender less than me and also maybe on a whim thinks, oh, Brittany has it, I can just go ask her to borrow it. And which brings me back to fucking Barb and her snowblower. Because like <laughs> I culturally, I feel uncomfortable asking people to borrow their private property. But, you know, culture shapes our tool use and our tool use shapes our culture. Mm. And so I think that even just like the paradigm shift of things being held in common and accessible to anyone when they need it would also allow for more fluid borrowing yeah. among neighbors. And just, I don't know, like what I just- What a relief that you don't it, have to talk about the dog incident, you know? Exactly. Like, to, yeah. Well, yeah. And you don't have to worry that they're going to break your blend or whatever, because if they do, then you can just get a new one from the library and the broken one goes back to the library, gets fixed and someone else takes it out. So it like it removes the all the logical reasons why you wouldn't want to do that as well. Yeah. And you might also know how to fix blenders if there's all this blender repair going on around. You've probably had access to opportunities to learn about the mechanical workings of things that are common, which are more or less universalized. I imagine we'll probably have a lot of inherited materials like from this society that we're reusing and restructuring, replacing parts on, figuring out how to make existing material that one part was broken and can't be replaced making new parts and stuff like that it could be a really patchwork sort of thing but i think this is all a process that everyone is involved in in an ideal society where power is distributed because there's benefits to specialization and having experts in like blender repair but there's also benefit in uh, basically giving people the opportunities to find their fullest individual expression. And if I'm being honest, my fullest individual expression would include being able to tinker around with more stuff than I currently tinker around with. And if there mm, were opportunities yeah. for me to become more of a tinkerer that way in a cultural construct where I could participate and there's the the next door or Facebook, <laughs> local Facebook groups of the future or whatever. And someone's like, oh, I'm going to bring this in to repair it. And then another person's like, hey, I know how to repair that. I can repair it for you. Maybe I could even teach you how to repair it. And like that sort of knowledge gets distributed through. And I, I, the other aspect of this is I think the working day needs to be cut down to like an absolute minimum, like your weekly coerced work needs to be continually decreasing. So we have more and more space for democracy, more and more space for self-actualization. But we need institutions to be able to really do that, I think. Yeah. I like a 4-4 model, four hours a day, four days a week. I think that's the perfect amount of yeah, work. Yeah, 16. I was yeah. going to go with 20, but I like 16 even better. Because it's less. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> One could also even imagine sort of like tiers of you work more and you work harder at different times of the year, or you could think of benefits other than the accumulation of power that come with working harder or longer, like even just like social prestige, temporary social prestige. There's all these different ways that humans could be motivated around work to have variable work weeks. But in terms of like what the minimum is, I think, yeah, like I would, I would aim eight to 16. It's like the hard minimum that everyone has to do or whatever in society try to keep it really light and but also have room to like yeah if you really love tinkering you go down to the library repair shop and you're meeting with other friends and you're all doing repair work together at a certain point that's not really work anymore it's work if you have yeah. to fucking fix toilets and you hate toilets but it's not work to fix blenders if you love blenders and you're with your friends yeah and so in a situation where we have, you know, a minimal amount of productive labor, you know, sort of asked from everybody, the people who are like, you know, 
the rise and grinders, the people who like want to, you know, accumulate and like just work their entire lives down to the nub, we're going to have to, you know, give them some other incentive other than, you know, accumulating capital to leverage on people who haven't. Yeah, like um, the labor equivalent of a hamster wheel or something. <laughs> yeah, we, like... we, we got to put them in a, uh, I don't know, we got to give them gold stars or like sour uh, dino gummies or like somehow like give them social tokens that like are like, hey, like good on you because like you know not everybody wants to just work 16 hours and then chill some people... i know some freaks who always want to be working <laughs> and it's interesting but i think that society will always have long-term projects things that need to be done but they don't need to be done today they don't need to be done this week and i feel like that's where those people will shine mm. and then they'll have the social prestige of building the future yeah. um you know repairing that building that like doesn't need an inhabitant now but you know i think yeah. there'll always be enough work to do so you also need the social pressure to say that like working too much is not good for society. Mm. Like when you're working that much, you aren't creating social connections that are outside of productive labor. And you would get a subset of people who are like, I'm going to be the person that works all the time so that I do get these like social credits. And then like, wait, why do I have to work with or uh, make decisions with people who don't work as hard as me. I feel like that's like a dangerous kind of... Um, well, that's where violence comes ego, in. Those people just get slapped. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's no, making you work. No, 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 no. You know, like, what, what, was that, what was that like the, the Ursula Le Guin thing of like, those are like uh ego egos like, egoists, like egoists yeah yeah like these are you know like i think that's i think that's a real danger i think that 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 sort of will to power through well, 16 hour them. work it days worked in the dispossessed yeah yeah i think it, need, uh, it either needs something right? yeah it needs something like that i think that i have a couple thoughts on that one is that i think people who throw themselves into work that much it's like usually a coping mechanism for something else they're avoiding in their life that isn't being dealt with the same way people throw themselves into like gaming for hours on end or like any other like compulsive behavior that you're doing because it's comfortable like some people just do that with work and i think like there's other social things that needs to happen to help people out with that kind of thing. And then the other thought I had on a slightly different track was rather than like defining stars or like social tokens or you get a happy face or whatever, I think it's also <laughs> like just useful to potentially have logs of like, hey, this person has logged 10,000 hours working at this particular thing in the same way people track how much time they spent playing a game or whatever like if you know that a certain person is put in a certain amount of time doing a particular thing that's a level of expertise that we can recognize socially in all the ways that it's appropriate to recognize that in terms of even weighted decision making like you were mentioning kind of the egoist version of oh why should i share decision making with people who don't know as much but like uh to some extent experts might have weighted decision making in like a democratic system and the prestige of spending a whole bunch of time doing something that's useful for people and like hey you're really good at that and like all of that can be kind of tracked in a way of like who's doing what basically and i think it's important to like track that kind of stuff too at least to some extent like we we just did an episode on the tragedy of the commons and then eleanor ostrom's 
eight rules mm. for managing the commons. She won the Told fake kids. Nobel Prize in economics for economics, debunking yeah. the tragedy of the commons. And uh, one of her eight principles is that you need to monitor what people are doing with the commons in order to make sure that, you know, you're not breaking items and whatnot, but also like who's putting in work where, uh, not just so that you can shame people who aren't, <clears throat> who aren't putting in work or who are putting in too much work, but just so that we know who has experience doing what, so we know who to go to when we need to ask questions or get help with something. It, it occurs to me that maybe a way that we could prevent the hierarchy thing of like, oh, I put in a thousand hours on this, like you're a schlub compared to me. And someone like, it, it occurred to me of like, when you're overworking, you're not just robbing yourself of a variety of experience with different people. You're also robbing your community of time with you as a person. And you're robbing your community of your full development as a person. And so maybe a way that we could prevent that overwork drive in certain people who are trying to avoid something or whatever drives them to work too much by saying like, yeah, and we don't record more than 32 hours a week. No matter how much work you do, it caps out at 32 and you have to wait till the next week for it to restart. So like you can work yeah, as hard like as you it. want, go for it, but like no one's going to record it. It's illegal to record it. Um, I, I actually, I, I do a design exercise with my students. I, I I'm a college professor in geography and planning and, and we do i do a, like an in-class exercise with eleanor ostrom's like eight different design prospects that you own like and and one of the more interesting i i give them the, the scenario of like there's like a uh, this may or may not come from personal experience there's like these great raspberry bushes on the edge of a community that produce a lot of raspberries and they're really really delicious and everyone wants them and then there are a few people who make a really good jam with them but they need more of them and they sell them. So like the scenario is how do you make sure everyone gets what they want? And how do you deal with people that take even more for then personal gain to make things? And I just go like, you're like, what do you, you know, go for like an hour. <laughs> and it's interesting what people come up with, right? Because, you know, oftentimes, you know, you're just like, you know, just want to get through it. And so they're like, well, you know, if you take too much, they call the cops or something. Drop the berries. Right, yeah, Shoot right. the jam maker and, dead to, in to the which, street. You know, you, yeah. yeah, yeah. To which you say, you know, like, that's not a very good graduated uh, <laughs> form of, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, sanction. You know, like the yeah. uh, graduated sanctions are very important, right? You can't just call the cops or shoot the guy, right? And, and they're like, oh, sh damn it. You know, and they have to go back and do it again. You know, but, but you know, as far as, you know, like priming the pump, you know, like it's a, it's a, it's a it is a really good exercise mm, i don't know if i completely mm. always agree with everything ostrom puts together because like there she has she has stuff about like how important it is to exit uh, a given situation where you know if like if you don't like what's going on here you know you can just leave and that's and quite often you know we live in a society or so i've been told right so like it's hard to exit so, you know, some institutions are very difficult to, to exit. When I was an anthropology yeah. student, one of the first lessons that we learned in like human, human history from an anthropological perspective was that societies that are most internally peaceful are the ones where it's easiest to leave. Mm. And it's once we start uh, like building permanent settlements and like, you know, we're not, we're no longer nomadic and it's like really hard to leave now because like all, you have all this stuff that you've accumulated and it's all here and you can't really carry it. That's when you start requiring more stringent and centralized laws because 
people get a little riled up when they can't leave. Whereas like beforehand, you know, if you really didn't like something, you just go find another place. Yeah, I, I do think it's true that the Industrial Revolution has uh, 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 and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely true. <laughs> I think it's really agriculture, honestly. That's where it all started. Yeah. If we could just, just roll back the clock. Do Kaczynski one better. I think it was like, just the clock. Industrial Revolution. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, no clocks. <laughs> yeah, just clocks, go, with, yeah. go by the sun. It would have worked out fine. Yeah. yeah, stupid monks. But yeah, there's layers to it. Like, we can't leave Spaceship Earth, but we can go to a different community where people have different local rules around how late you're allowed to make noise or something. If that's the, yeah. like, I, I think there's places which it applies and places which it doesn't, for sure. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's challenging, but I think on that, you ideally do want to have a society, when you're thinking of the entirety of the planet Earth, it's not going to be a homogenous political exercise. No matter what we do, planet Earth is not going to be a politically homogenous place. We can hope to try to seed the preconditions, the sort of like charter rules of how people can interrelate to each other with different modes of organizing. And we can try to like create the conditions of a great peace amongst all these different groups um, and all these ideally, I think, different types of library society that have variety within them, within sort of my utopian imaginary here but the i think yeah at the at the end of the day the homogenization and the totality of any individual thing i think does create types of tension that can be better mediated through say like voice and exit within a confederation where you can mm. you know at the end of the day i'm not leaving this pod of neighbors because we disagree ultimately about about everything I'm leaving because we disagree about the trash schedule or something like that. And I'm going to try to find a place where what I want to see is better reflected, but according to sort of the same principles at the end of the day, like we can't, we can't, you can't cohabitate with someone peacefully who's going to destroy the planet. Yeah. I have to go find the murder society. I'm going to go live with those <laughs> yeah. guys because I want to yeah. live in a community that normalizes murder. If you yeah. throw Your trash out purge. on a Wednesday, go fuck yourself. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, like oh, eco-socialism is, is cool for some people, but I'm on the eco side train and I need a home base for that. <laughs> it's on the moon. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. <laughs> I, I see this as sort of maybe the second insight of library socialism as a whole, which is that like through differences coming together, there can be new types of strength and that like a variety of different tactics for political change or even a variety of different ways of organizing libraries, having that sort of evolutionary space of splitting and difference and complementarities and contradictions being worked out, like that is a generative process that itself, very similar to how all the different books in the library provide a more cohesive experience, uh, a whole that's bigger than the sum of its parts, all the different ways of experiments and organization or experiments and structuring society can also mutually reinforce each other's strength. Um, and, and like, this is a little bit less material than I say the first insight of library socialism, but I, I think it's just a way of thinking about holistic systems and thinking non-hierarchically is how things that are different come together, uh, like a commons or even things that we would typically call a hierarchy or think of as a hierarchy are actually more better understood as like different things coming together to create a whole that's more than the sum of its parts. And that's happening around like us all the time. Yeah, exactly. But then even a web has sort of like a central point. It's made by a spider. I, <laughs> I, imagine a hypercube web 
like <laughs> it, like Indra's web, where in at every node there's a little bead of water that's reflecting back the entirety of the four dimensional time web system. Absolutely, exactly. No. Not gonna. <laughs> I, I I exit that. <laughs> <sighs> well, speaking of exit. <laughs> that is probably a good place to end it, I think, right? Yeah. Thank you so much, Sean and Aaron, for joining us today and letting us do this crossover episode with you. Oh, it's our pleasure. Um, it was this has been great conversation. Super, super fun. Yeah, yeah. This is probably the headiest iron weeds that we've done in quite some time, I think. Because yeah. usually we're just like cracking jokes about Joe Biden and stuff. But this was actually actually talking <laughs> about building the future that works for all of us. And it was wonderful. And talking about the news. It's yeah, important. A little bit. Did we talk about the news? No, no. I'm saying that's what we usually do. Yeah, yeah but so. we don't talk about important stuff, really. So <laughs> thanks so much to both of you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thanks for uh, reaching out and setting up the conversation. I haven't talked about this in a while on a show, so I had some things built up. I was like, oh, yeah, I got to get these out. I was really excited. Yeah, I'm also at Library of Socialism. I feel like it's something that always really interesting stuff comes out in groups with different people's sort of perspectives on how it connects so yeah i think it was a really uh really nourishing conversation i feel uh intellectually stimulated to think more about how to like redesign society and the steps to get there oh but i want to say one little thing you mentioned being sweetie pie failing in the end well everything except for being sweetie pie seems to fail in the end too so we're fucked <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I actually, I actually w- want to point out that, like, I think sweetie being sweetie pie is the way, and I agree with you. I guess, like, the the issue is that, like, there's always that lowest common denominator of problem solving that you know violence that we're always, always, always trying to operate above. And I'm with you 100 percent of the way. But hey, if someone if someone is going to kill you, yeah, stand up for yourself. I- <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> What does Malcolm X say? Somebody's uh, gonna lay a hand on you, take him off this earth. Yeah, no, he he's, he said he, he's like almost get it. It's like be kind, be polite, obey the law. But if someone lays their hand on you, send them to the cemetery. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. excellent advice. Where we're all headed. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, right? It's not it's not changing anything except for you know timing. And what is time? Whoa. It's, it's a construct right? violence <laughs> violence really it's a, killing someone is the lesser violence of time yeah we all get returned to the library of the earth in the end yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. <laughs> all right well thanks again wrong boys um everybody go check out seriously wrong and yeah check out iron yeah. weeds while you're at like weeds it. iron weeds it's as fine. well yeah do you say like weeds <laughs> <laughs> and like weeds check out iron weeds no, no, no never no <laughs> and also the other podcast about the pinkertons and stuff also oh yeah great. reaction reaction yeah. yeah everybody really should look at reaction it's a good um, idea the most slept on leftist podcast with extremely high production value in my opinion on the thank internet. you thank you very much um Yes, I should say it's about reactionaries and it's like kind of a history podcast about yeah. uh right-wing reactionaries so uh, in the style of like, who is John Galt? Who is Smedley Darlington Butler? Oh, oh you're going to find out. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great You that's need a great to know series. who Smedley Darlington Butler is. You caught my attention. It's important. Who is this darling? Yeah. <laughs> and, and what was he put up? What, who set him up to do? Whose great grandfather set him up to do what? I. <laughs> <laughs> Next time on Seriously Weeds. Maoist Elizabeth Warren and Elon Musk's head in the jar say their vows to one another as they are joined in holy matrimony. 
Ladies and gentlemen, we're gathered here today to bear witness to the joining of these two souls, Maoist Elizabeth Warren and the disembodied head in a jar of Elon Musk. They have prepared vows to say in front of all of you, take it away. Elon, when I first told my mommy that I was marrying a head in a jar, but that he was also very rich and had a space company and made electric tanks, she said, I sometimes wonder about your judgment, Liz. But you know what? They were wrong because here we are today and I'm just so happy to be marrying the most handsome head in a jar that I have ever seen in my life. Liz, when I look at the headlights of the new model Tesla before it explodes, it is almost like looking into your soul because it is so bright. Your eyes are almost as beautiful as the emeralds in my family mine. I want you to know that I will always love you and I don't need a blockchain for our marriage because our marriage is a trustful technology, not a trustless one. And I don't think I will need to burn down as many forests to keep it uh, alive. I love you. I love you, Elon. I now pronounce you head in a jar and wife.